In John chapter 11, we have what is undeniably the most kind of fantastical miracle that Jesus performs. And it happens in the midst of severe disappointment from Jesus' closest followers. And sometimes disappointment can lead us to a crisis of faith. I read this week about Ted Turner, the media mogul, the one that created CNN and TBS, multi-billionaire. In his 20s, he became a very outspoken atheist. Many of you may know that or remember that if you remember Ted Turner. But the thing is, before that, when he was in high school, he was an extremely committed follower. At least that's what he claims, that he was religiously committed and was a part of his youth group. In fact, there was a point in his life when he thought he might end his life being a missionary for God. When he was 15, his younger sister Mary Jane, who was 12, contracted lupus, a degenerative tissue disease, and she was racked with pain and consistently vomiting, and her screams filled the house from her pain. Ted would regularly come home and hold her hand, trying to comfort her. He prayed for her recovery again and again, and one day he came home and found out that she had died. Ted's dad, a man named Ed Turner, remarked at the time, if that's the type of God he is, I want nothing to do with him. And Ted said, I was taught that God was love and God was powerful, and I couldn't understand how someone so innocent should be made allowed to suffer so much. Ted's father would later take his life, and that was the final straw, according to Ted. And he walked away from the Lord. One of the most famous skeptics is a, in the world is a man named Bart Ehrman. He has a similar story about why he became a skeptic. He says, I think that if, in fact, God Almighty appeared to me and gave me an explanation that can make sense of the torture, of the dismemberment, of the slaughter of innocent children, and the explanation was so overpowering that I could understand, then I'd be the first to fall on my knees in humble submission and admiration. I just don't think that's going to happen. And just hoping it will is probably wishful thinking, a leap of faith made by those who are desperate to remain faithful to God and to cope with the harsh realities of this world. Wow, wow, that's kind of depressing to start the whole sermon out there. But it's reality, right? At some point in our lives, even if you've not lost your faith, all of us have probably struggled with thoughts about why things like this happen. C.S. Lewis lost his wife to a painful bout with cancer, and he wrote about it and said, I can't understand why God is always there when things are going well, telling you what he expects. But go to him when your need is desperate, with all other help is in vain, and what do you find? Often a door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seems so once. Why is God so present, a commander in our time of prosperity, and so very absent, a help in our time of trouble? Now here's the thing about that quote. That's after C.S. Lewis became a believer. 
And somehow that quote never makes the famous C.S. Lewis quotes. Right? Now he made it through it. His faith ultimately was strengthened by it. But he articulates what many of us feel. That all of us at some point in our lives will go through these moments. These, 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 maybe it's an illness of a loved one. Maybe it's a death of a loved one. Maybe it's um, a, a catastrophic failure in our career or in a business venture or in a family relationship or a marriage breaks apart. And we think, where is God now? What happened? And you become disappointed with the Lord. In those moments, you really have three options of things that can happen. One is you can do what Ted Turner did and walk away from your faith. Conclude that it was all a lie. It's not really there. Never been there. And if it is, and that's who Jesus is, that's who God is, then I don't want to be any part of it. The second thing is what a lot of believers do, honestly. That is just they isolate the question from their faith. They just don't think about it. They shut off the parts of their hearts and minds to, to Christian faith and how it relates. And they just either they're a believer and they think, I just want to even think about the implications of that. Or they're not and they think, I don't really want to think about God in this moment. And they just live superficially on the surface just trying to get by. The third option is to go further in our faith and to press deeper into Jesus. Let those questions drive us deeper into an understanding of who God is. At times in my life when I have asked the hardest questions, when I struggled, when I doubted even, have been the times in my life, honestly, when my faith has grown the most. The depths of God's love can often be known best in the depths of despair. You can't know how deep the love of God is until you cry out to Him from the depths and say, God, you're all that I have. Today's story is a story of a couple of sisters who were at that point of desperation and discouragement and honestly felt like they had been sold a bill of goods that were not true. John chapter 11. Now, like last week, this is a lengthy story. Many of you may know this story, but I want us to read it all together and then we're going to look at the people that were around, why Jesus did this, and what we can take from it. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, and it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. Now, this is the first time in the book of John that we have Mary and Martha and Lazarus all put together as a family unit. Now, we have stories from them in other places, Um, You have, of course, the Mary and Martha situation where Martha's uh, cleaning and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. You have this where they identify Mary as the one that perfumed, uh, anointed Jesus' feet and then wiped with her hair. And at this point in John, he's saying, you know the stories about these people where they're all together. Lazarus is their sister and they're all there. And so the sister sent a message to him and said, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, just to kind of let you know, what had happened just before this in chapter 10 is that Jesus had been threatened to be stoned in the very area where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. In fact, it was around the area of Jerusalem where Bethany would have been located. It would have been just outside of it, a couple of miles from Jerusalem, not very far at all. And Jesus would have been walking back into a place, we'll see Thomas mentioned later, where they just tried to stone him. 
But Mary and Martha also know that Jesus loved Lazarus. Jesus loved them. They believed that Jesus could heal because they had seen him heal strangers, people that he had no relationship with, people that didn't deserve it, people that tattled on him, to use that word, people that told others things that weren't true about him. Jesus still healed. And so they thought if Jesus healed all those people, of course he's going to want to come heal Lazarus because he loves Lazarus. He loves us. He loves our family. He's dedicated to us. So they send a message and say, come see Lazarus, he's sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, the sickness will not end in death, but it's for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. I want to tell you, those two verses together are two of the strangest verses to me in all of the Bible. Jesus dearly loved this family, so he waited a couple of days to go see them. What do you expect to be said there, right? Jesus dearly loved this family, so he went immediately to find them. Like if someone wrote you or called you, texted you, and you said, hey, I need you today, and I need you in the next couple of hours, and you're like an hour away, and you said, you know what, I love you so much that I'll be there Tuesday. You wouldn't take that as a, boy, he cares about me. Boy, he really, they really care. But Jesus, it says, I mean, this is a cause and effect. Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus, so he waited two more days. Now, y'all, y'all know the end of the story, most of you, right? Okay, I'm not spoiling anything here. I don't want to do that. I want you to think for just a moment. We're going to talk about this more in a minute. Why is it more loving for Jesus to wait for him to die than to go and heal him while he's alive? Verse 7. Then after that, he said to the disciples, a couple of days, hey, let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said, hey, Rabbi, um, don't know if you remember this or not. We were there just a few days ago, and uh, they tried to kill you. We're going back. And Jesus gives, as he often did, this kind of cryptic question to a question. Aren't there 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. He said, listen, you're with me. Nothing's going to happen that's not supposed to happen. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this, and then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. And the dense-minded disciples said, Lord, if he's just asleep, he'll be all right. I would like to think that I would get it faster than the disciples did, and yet I realize I would not, right? The exercise the disciples continually engage in is not getting what Jesus is doing. Jesus, however, was speaking about death. I also love, there are lots of verses in this particular story. I love love this because Jesus basically just gives up and says, all right, he's dead. He was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about naturally. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And then he says another interesting thing. 
And I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. So let's go. Then Thomas, who the more I read about Thomas has become one of my favorite of the disciples. He gets a hard time because he had to have Jesus prove that he was risen. But Thomas says what a lot of us are thinking sometimes. And if we were in this situation, Thomas speaks the language of sarcasm. Now, I know there's no sarcasm fought here. I, I am a particular purveyor of sarcasm myself. I like it. I use it oftentimes when I shouldn't, maybe. But it says, Thomas said to his disciples, come on, let's go. Might as well go. We're all going to die anyways. Let's go. Verse 17. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. Now, if you've read this story before, if you've studied it at all, you know that the, the phrase four days was important. That's because there was this belief among Jewish people that the soul of a person kind of hovered for about three days around them. And so when you got to day four, it meant he was dead. There was no hope. It was over. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. People knew them. They loved them. They cared about them. There would have been professional mourners there probably as well. And as soon as Martha Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now there are a couple of things for this. Why is that the case? It's all speculation. We're not sure why each of these women did what they did. It it fits a little bit of the mold of what they do in the past. Martha is the doer, if you remember, the one cleaning the house, the one always working, the one that told Jesus, hey, tell my sister to get up and do something right now. And Mary was the one that kind of sat and and, and just kind of pondered. But I also think that in this situation, both of them are heartbroken by the fact that their brother has died and Jesus didn't get there in time. And Martha's way of dealing with that is, I'm going to go talk to him about it. And Mary's is, I can't even face him right now. Now, we all have people in our lives. I don't know which where you fall on that spectrum, but if something like this happens and you're disappointed and you're upset, some of you are like, I'm going to go talk to him. I'm going to get it out in the open. We're going to talk about it. We're going to clear the air. And some of you are like, I can't even deal with it right now. But here's the way God works sometimes in a funny sort of way. It's normally those two opposite people marry each other. Can I get an A? It's okay to amen that, right? And so what's happening here is Martha's going out and she's going to confront Jesus. Martha said to Jesus, just flat out says to him, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Do you hear the disappointment in that statement? If you would have been here. He wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, I don't think that Martha ever thought in that moment that Lazarus had come back to life because she says it later kind of that way. I think she's just saying, I mean, I know that I'm not, she's not saying I doubt your power. She's not, I doubt your, she said, I know that that you're doing what God wants you to do. If you would have been here though, He'd be okay. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. 
And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Verse 28. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying, The teacher is here and he is calling for you. Now, I don't know here if we don't have record that Jesus actually said, Go get Mary. That doesn't mean he didn't. I don't know if here if Martha is like, I'm, I'm, I'm done with the conversation, I believe in him, but I've just kind of get away and I'm going to tell Mary to go talk to him. But either way, it says, as soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. And Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to cry there. Because Martha said this privately, they didn't know what's going on, the professional mourners and the friends are going with them. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Sounds familiar. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews had become to crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. The original language of that phrase literally is, His bowels were disturbed. It's similar to what we would say today that I felt it in the pit of my stomach. Like like you've had those moments when you hear news and it feels like there's just something that drops internally. It's hard to describe, but you know it. The churning that is happening within, that is here. It is troubled, it is disturbed greatly. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they said, come and see. Jesus wept. Lots of discussion about why Jesus cries here. There's some that say it's because of the lack of faith of the sisters, and that may be the case. Some say it can't be because Lazarus died because he's about to raise him from the dead. But I think in that moment, Jesus, who in Hebrews tells us, understands all of our emotions, understands everything we are, is sympathetic with us in every possible way. I believe in that moment, the very human very real Jesus who was experiencing the emotions of the people around him and saw what death had done to this family, what death had done in separating. And even if it was temporary for that moment, he understood the depths of what was going on and the relationships and the sorrow that these people were feeling. Death was never supposed to be part of the plan. It is unnatural, although it is exactly what happens these days. The Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them says, yeah, but he should have been here. He should have kept him from dying. Verse 38, Jesus deeply moved against that same phrase. Came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, said, Lord, There is already a stench because he has been dead four days. I don't refer to the King James Version a lot, but if you have that version, that that, that phrase always comes back to this. He says there, Martha said he's been dead four days. By now, he stinketh. It's over, is what she's saying. There's no need. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and then Jesus raised his eyes. 
and said, it doesn't say he closed his eyes, he raised his eyes, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that you may believe, they may believe you have sent me. They may believe, that's the key phrase here, they may believe in you and me that you have sent. And after he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said, unwrap him and let him go. You want to talk about a weird day in your life, right? Like what's going on? Lots of crimes happening. Things are happening. And stone rolls away. He yells his name. He is already, according to this, the, this is a key detail about the original language. I know I said that the King James Version says he stinketh. The translation here in the CSB that I just read is a little more accurate. He has already begun to, can, can't you smell it? Can't you already smell what's happening? The stench of death was already in the air. Can't you understand, Jesus? It is too far gone. It is over. It is done with. You should have been here four days ago. But now the stench is already there. And you went from the stench of death to a dead man walking with a simple declaration from the voice of Jesus. So what happens? Verse 45 tells us many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did. So here's the thing. All these people that came that thought Mary was just going to cry at her brother's tomb, they got a show they never expected. And in that moment, they believed. Or many of them did. But 46 tells us, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? They don't deny that his signs are real. They don't deny that the miracles are real. At this point, they're just worried what it means for them. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. I love 51's commentary on this. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nations. And not for the nation only, but also for unite the scattered children of God. In verse 53, so from that day on, they plotted to kill him. So here's the question we have to ask. What's the, what's the underlying story of all of this that is happening? What's the underlying story that, that is through all of this? You see, in the story, we have all kinds of people represented that are gathered around the tomb of Lazarus or following with Jesus. We have faithless people. We have people that don't believe that Jesus is going to do what he says he can do. People that are concerned about what's going to happen. Even the disciples at the beginning of this story. Jesus, we don't need to go back. They're going to kill you, Jesus. Don't you know they tried to stone you, Jesus? Nothing's going to help him now. He's going to be dead. If he's dead, what does it matter if we go back? There's no way you can help him now. They're faithless even though they have seen miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, sign after sign after sign after sign. Their faith isn't what it needs to be. Even Martha, Jesus, I know that you could raise people. I know that on the last day you're going to bring people back to life. And he's like, no, Martha, I need you to believe that it can be done here and now. 
We have people that are scared. Thomas, who says, fine, we'll go back. We'll just all die together. That they realize that there is something to be scared about in this life. That they're fearful of what's coming. They're scared of what might be ahead. You have people in sorrow that are literally crying and weeping. There are people that are consistently going around trying to figure out their life in that moment. One of the things as a pastor is I deal with, talk with, am around people a lot that have lost loved ones. And there's almost this fog that takes over in the days after or in the days even after the funeral where people are so bound by sorrow. They are so given to sorrow in those moments that life almost stands still for the rest of everything else. And sorrow can linger, not for a day or for a week or for a month, but for years and decades. You've got skeptical people that are like, well, why wouldn't he hear sooner? I don't know that he can do anything. He couldn't even do this. He could could heal people, but he didn't come and heal his friend. At the end, even after he's performed the miracle, I think this is fascinating. That after he's performed the miracle, people have literally seen the stinking dead raised to life. They think the best thing for us to do is go tell on this God to the Pharisees. Implication is they don't believe in him. They're skeptical. You have hopeless people. Jesus, there's no hope for him. Lazarus is gone. Accept it. Deal with it. And you've even got people that are hostile to their faith. They're going to attempt to kill him, and they will kill him. I don't know where you are on that spectrum today, whether you're here and you say, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. I need more faith. I need more help. Maybe you're scared. Maybe things that are around you that are scared. One of the things that I'm convinced of that has happened in our world on the last two years so we are officially two years into COVID-19, is that one of the things that the enemy has done as a result of COVID, which was a very real disease, is that instilled fear into people that is above and beyond what people have experienced before. And believers and non-believers are living their lives more scared than they've lived before. Worried about the what ifs, worried about the yeah buts, worried about, well, I live, what if I go, what if this happens, what if I find myself in that place, what if I get sick? And I understand that there are very real concerns and very real dangers out there. And I remember two years ago when all this started to come out, some of the, I don't know if y'all remember this, but when they didn't have a clue what was going on. They started analyzing the people that it impacted the most. There were obviously age characteristics, but then they started coming out with these stories. Like, you don't have to worry about it unless, okay? So men have to worry about it more than women. I was like, well, that's not good for me. No, All blood types are fine except type A. I'm type A. All these comorbidities are bad except diabetes is the worst. Great, I got that one. And it's like every time I read a story, it was like everybody's fine, but. And I was like, okay, the age is the only thing I have. And I remember those first few weeks in isolation and in our house and neighbors, friends coming down to play with our kids. And they were trying to play it for six feet apart. That was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And at some point, you just had to live. 
And part of that's because I have an assurance that even if it takes me out, and someday something will, sooner or later, if the Lord tarries his coming, something is going to take every one of us in this room out. But do I believe that that's better for me or not? Faithless people, fearful people, sorrowful people, and maybe that's where you are today. Man, you've lost someone, and it hurts. Maybe it is the loss of life, and it hurts. Maybe it's the loss of a relationship, a friendship, a marriage, a child that has walked away. Maybe you're, you're skeptical. Like, I just don't know that all of that's right. Maybe perhaps you're watching today, or you're here, and... If people were to know truly what you feel, you're hopeless. You don't really know what tomorrow holds. So here's the question. What does this story teach us no matter where we are in our lives? The first thing that I see in the story is that no matter what's going on in our lives, our purpose, the ultimate purpose in life is to glorify God. The ultimate purpose is God's glory. Now, how do I say that from this story? Did you see how many times in this story Jesus said, this is for the glory of God? Right? Lazarus is going to die. He goes, that, that's not going to happen. Not permanently. But God's glory is going to be displayed. The disciples said, what do you mean that he's fallen asleep? He goes, no, he's not asleep, guys. He's dead. And I'm glad he's dead because well, you're going to see the glory of God based off the fact that he's dead. At the end, when Jesus is praying, what does he pray? He prays, I, I'm not saying this, Lord, for anybody else, but these people. It's not, I, I know you. You know me. We're on the same page. These people need to believe in you, and I'm going to show the glory of God today. I don't know if this sounds familiar to you or not, but there was a sermon last week where we talked about the man born blind, we're all born in darkness, all of that. And if you remember when the disciples asked Jesus the question, why is this man blind? Is it something he did or his parents did? And Jesus said, it's neither. It's so that the glory of God may dis- display. It's not just a New Testament thing. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament in Exodus. I don't know if you remember this, when Moses is given the, the law and he comes down and they're all worshiping a golden calf. Y'all remember that? And, God's ready to destroy them. And Moses prays with God, and now and Moses and God are talking, and Moses says, God, what will the other nations think of your glory if you destroy these people? They are for you. Our job is to display your glory. That's our purpose in life. God's glory is ultimate. I asked that question earlier, why is it better for Lazarus to die in this moment than for him to get there and healing? Now, there's a chance that if Jesus went and healed Lazarus, it would be a story in the Bible. But the glory that God got in this moment and has continued to receive for a couple of thousand years post this moment is infinitely more. And you say, yeah, but that's not good for Lazarus. Right? What is that good for Lazarus? Well, Lazarus was going to die. He just got to die twice. Again, what's good about that? Well, nobody else could have claimed some of the things that he claimed. Right? Do you imagine the stories he's telling around the table? 
And you're not going to believe this. I was dead for four days. Out. But ultimately it's better because God's glory is demonstrated. We think of things in very earthly, material ways. God thinks of things in ultimate glory kind of ways. And many times in our lives, struggles, problems, issues that we have, we see from a temporal suffering kind of moment, and God sees the capability of making them something that brings glory forever to his name. Paul talks about joining in the sufferings of Christ so that he may experience what Jesus did and be exalted like him. God's glory is ultimate in all things that we do. Here's the second thing we learn in this. Faith is key to our walk with the Lord. Jesus wants people to have faith in him. In this passage, faith is mentioned nine times. And this is my question for you. What do you doubt that God can do in your life or in our world? Because Mary and Martha believed in Jesus. Martha even says, I know you're the Messiah. I believe you're Messiah. Mary ran to him. They believed. If you would have been here, they believed. But their belief in Jesus had a limit. We believed up until the point that our brother died. And now we don't think there's much you can do about that now. He's already dead, Jesus. They didn't believe in that moment he could reverse death. So here's my question to you. What is the limit on your faith in your walk with Jesus? What is the magnitude of what he can do in your life or in our world that you say, that's too much? Because to walk with the Lord means to trust him completely with everything. And so if there's something in your life right now you're doubting that God can do, You need to confess that and trust Him. Now, I'm not talking about a name it and claim it. If I say it, God will have to do it. I'm saying what Jesus is capable of doing. If there is a problem that you think is too big for Jesus, then your vision of Jesus is way too small. And we're all guilty of this. I'm not trying to be preacherly up here and say, no, I've never struggled with this. We're all guilty of this at some point thinking, all right, God, I trust you in this, but I'm also going to take it on myself and make it happen. God, I believe you can do anything, but I'm going to work hard to see it happen in my life. There are a lot of us that will claim to believe in Jesus and then live as if it's dependent upon us. So where's your limit? Now, Mary and Martha, they had a pretty high limit. Let's be honest, right? Like, we believe you could do it up until the point of death. You could heal him. Now we think it's too far gone. Our limits, all denials, are much lower than that. Faith is the key to our walk with Christ. And this is the last, this is the heart of the story. This is the message of the story. It's not even the rise from the dead, although that definitely happens and informs this. The the heart of the story is this reality, that Jesus gives resurrection and life because he is resurrection and life. One of the key elements that John wants people to understand is it's not just about what Jesus does. He does because he is. What he does is because of who he is. And Jesus can raise the dead because he is life. 
He is the fountain and the foundation of life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all that was created was created through Him. Jesus is not just someone who does things. Jesus is throughout the book of John. We could have just as easily as we did a sermon series on the signs of Jesus, we could have done a series on the I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am resurrection and life. And by the way, in the Greek, these are often reversed And so it's not just I am resurrection and life. It is resurrection and life I am. And it's that ego of me. You remember that from a couple of weeks ago? I am. The Yahweh construction from the Old Testament transferred to the New Testament. Jesus is declaring in this moment that He can give us life. He can give us hope. He can give us the reality that we never expected could happen because He is. And that's important because every one of us in this room needs hope in life after death. Every one of us in this room know that death is inevitable for us. And outside of Jesus, we will spend eternity separated from God. But with Christ, we will live eternally forever in the greatest place that has ever been thought of. We can't even ask or imagine to imagine how great it's going to be. Romans chapter 6 verses 8 says... If we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Him. 2 Corinthians 4.14 For we know the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus. We need hope. That's why it's so important for us to live our lives not scared of death. For the believer, it tells us that to die is gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. But it's not just that the resurrection and life of Jesus gives us hope after death. It gives us the strength we need here and now. Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we may walk in the newness of life now. Jesus being resurrection and life means that we can trust Him for the resurrection and life both now and forever. That's what we do with this story. We trust the great I Am who is our provider and our sacrifice, the one who died in our place so that we might be raised with Him. We trust Him with our future, which means we live boldly in this moment. We don't live in fear. We don't live in timidity. We live with boldness in this world because the worst thing that can happen to us in this world is the best thing that can happen to us in eternity. For me to die is Christ and to be with Him. So the first thing that we do out of this is we trust Him now and forever. And the last thing we do, this is it. We tell everyone how to overcome death through Jesus. We have the greatest cure in the history of the world. Now, we've talked a little bit about the pandemic today. One of the things that I think is absolutely remarkable that happened in the pandemic was the production and the development of a treatment and a vaccine that definitely saved lives. 
But you know what I think was remarkable about that is once they had something they thought really worked, nobody thought, you know, we probably ought to keep this to ourselves for a little bit. Now, however you feel about the vaccines, I know there are people with varying opinions out there. The people that developed it and knew that it worked, believed that it worked, nobody, none of them thought, you know what, let's just keep this under wraps for a while. There was a concerted effort to give everyone that wanted it a shot. There's no doubt about the effectiveness of the saving blood of Jesus Christ. None. It is the vaccine for sin that every person on this earth needs. And I wish the church of Jesus Christ would come up with a way to distribute it to every single person in this place as effectively as a deficient government did with a vaccine. Here's the reality. It's not complicated. It's just us individually telling people, how to overcome death through Jesus. He is the resurrection and life. I want to give you a task this week. It's Easter. Do you know what's on everybody's mind? Peeps. Um, no, not really. How many of you are Peeps fans? I'll pray for you. All right. The real people are Reese's eggs. Those are the people that... Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? There we go. It's Easter. Jesus is on people's minds. There are two times a year when Jesus is on the minds of normal people, people that aren't committed to him, Christmas and Easter. Now, they may not even know fully about Easter. People know less about Easter than Christmas because Hallmark doesn't have 24-hour Easter movies. They know less about it. But it's an easy week to have a conversation. It's the easiest week to invite someone to come to church because for a lot of people even that have moved in I don't know if y'all realize this or not but lots of people have moved in here from not not Tennessee they know that one of the things you do on Easter is you go to church it's a cultural experience my challenge to you this week is to invite and bring someone with you to church next week and to invite them to your house for lunch afterwards if you're eating at your house or with your family. Now, they may say, no, I got people, I got that. And you're like, wait a minute, we, we have an Easter tradition. What if this year we cared more about people coming to faith in Jesus Christ than just living up to our traditions? Invite someone to church. Offer to walk, come with them. Meet them at the door. And I promise you this, next week I'll preach a message on what it means to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's the easiest week to do that. It's Easter. But I promise that. And then you have the conversations with them afterwards about what it means to follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for this story of Lazarus. It's a cool story. It's got lots of fun stuff in it. Lord, I'd love to be there. I hope someday that we'll get to see kind of what happened there. But Lord, I'm more thankful for the reality that you are the resurrection and the life.
and that you have saved me. And because of that, I don't have to fear death. I don't have to fear what may come. Because you've assured me of an eternity with you. And Lord, in this moment, I'm just asking that if I'm praying, Lord, for anyone in this room that does not yet know you as their Savior, that have never accepted you as the Son of God, the one that can save them from their sins, the answer to the death that is coming. Lord, I pray if there are those people here today that you would give them understanding of that, and Lord, that you would help them to have the strength and the courage today to surrender to you. pray in this moment if there are those that just need to come and pray at this altar. Lord, you release some stuff to you. Confess some areas of their life where they have lacked faith. Confess some areas of their life where they've been hopeless. Confess some areas of their life, Lord, where they've been hostile even towards you. Some things that they're angry with you about. Lord, I pray that you would give them just the strength and the courage to do that. There are those that need to come and Declare that they've already accepted you as their Savior, but they've never been baptized. They want to do that. Or they're ready to join First Baptist as the church home that you've called them to. Lord, I pray that you would just give them the strength and the courage to do that. We pray all of this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus, who died for our sins. Amen.